Well, good morning, family. To all of you sitting in your homes, whether I know you already or I don't know you yet, know that you're missed. For those of you who don't know, I'm Adam, pastor of community here at Livingstone's Church. I started working here about 10 months ago. And for a person who loves being with people and whose job is literally to try and bring people together, my heart truly mourns to preach to a community when the sanctuary is essentially empty. But the Lord has a word for you, and, I'm, and I pray that you'll hear it. You know, when I began to, to plan and, and research to speak about community, I found be, that I was more led to speak about the unity of the body. And then I would realize that it's Pentecost Sunday. And what happened at Pentecost wraps unity and community in a blanket. So let me just pray. Lord, we thank you for this day that you've brought us together regardless of where we're sitting, Lord, in our living rooms or out camping or wherever we're enjoying our long weekend. We thank you that you, your Holy Spirit is with us and you tie us together. May your word not return void. May you be glorified. Amen. In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy demanded that Linus change TV channels threatening him with her fist if he did not. What makes you think you have the right to come in here and take over, Linus protests. These five fingers, said Lucy, individually they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, what channel do you want, asks Linus, turning away. He looks at his own fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? You know, a united body is a powerful force. And an attack on our unity is an attack on our community. And I believe we are in a fight. In quoting from a pastor in Ontario, in the last few years, we've moved from an era of reasonable consensus to polarization, partisanship, and division. And this crisis of 2020 to 21 has only accelerated and heightened that tension. You know, but this fight is not a new one but one that's been there since the beginning. Unity between God and man was broken when Adam and Eve decided that they deserved everything, that God had no right to withhold from them. They chose not to submit. In his second commandment, in the second commandment written by Moses states to not make an idol. And what is an idol? But something that we put in front, something that we worship. And we all worship something And you know, they chose to make themselves idols, put themselves first above God. And we've suffered that break in unity between God and man ever since. And then unity breaks down further in mankind as their own children, as Cain kills Abel. And you know, the world quickly, relatively speaking, in terms of the chapters of the Bible, by chapter 7, we're almost completely wiped out by the flood because of mankind's destruction, and disunity. Mankind gets to start over again. Thank God for second chances. And you know, they begin to realize the power of working together and being together for a common goal, and it all culminates at the Tower of Babel. And in that time, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary, Genesis 11.1. God watches these plans by man and responds in 11.6. If they have begun to do this, as one people all having the same language, 
then nothing they, can, they plan to do will be impossible for them. Humankind recognizes a strength inherent within himself that when we are truly united, we are so much more than the sum of our parts. But instead of this power that we have within us pointing us to our maker to glorify him, we again reach for the heavens ourselves. Our gifts, our God-given gifts, our God-made design can become tools that we use to attempt to put ourselves above God. And it seems we constantly need to learn the hard way, and God essentially breaks another aspect of our unity, our common language. And some suggest that he didn't just confuse the languages, but even our base ability to understand one another. Has there ever been a time when you guys were, when you had a conversation with somebody, a discussion, and you walk away and realize both of you had a completely different conclusion of what you just spoke about? I know that I, that happens a lot. Ask my wife. You know, the story continues as God's people are formed into a nation and they enter the promised land and judges come along to try and steer the people away from the evils, evil and idols and instead to unite them to God. But at the end of a judge's little progress has been made and it concludes by saying, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to them, to him. Judges 21, 25. And wow, isn't that a present day verse for our culture? doing whatever seems right to us. You know, the nation of Israel then asks for someone to stand between God and man, and kings are born in 1 Samuel 8. God is yet again rejected, and instead of putting him as our king, we want a man king. And so he sends his prophet Samuel to warn the people of the problems of kings, that kings will take our children, and they're going to make them serve them. And ultimately, we're gonna, he's going to, a king would call our children to die for him. And that whatever the best of our produce, of the people and of the land, the king would keep for themselves. But yet, we still chose a human king. And as God promised, kings brought a disruptive age. The God-fearing kings did bring some order, some prosperity and growth, but was overwhelmed by the evil kings who were selfish and self-centered, and it culminated in a broken kingdom that eventually was shipped off into captivity by other nations. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, God's people are still scattered partially throughout the nations. And in Israel itself is not even under their control. It's under Roman control. And the religious system of beliefs to unite God and man has been added to with more than 600 more laws created by the Pharisees to help keep them in line. And those rules in turn, it produced a heartless and cold and arrogant brand of righteousness. Jesus turned it all upside down. And he brought freedom and new life to so many. But yet still, we turned him over to the officials and we nailed them to the cross. And yet he rose again as he promised. And while he changed the lives of those that he encountered, that helper that he promised, Holy Spirit would spread his power and life wider than any one man could do. And so we arrive at this momentous time in Acts 2, what is now called the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is, fell on the Jewish celebration called the, festival, the Feast of Weeks. And one thing that we, they celebrated was Moses receiving the law, essentially God's will for man. And it was written on stone tablets. But from the history I just shared, 
that law was failing to penetrate the hearts of man. It was failing to unite them. And Jeremiah talks about what's going to come in 31:33. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Something's going to happen. And we see it in, in Pentecost. And just as Jesus became the perfect sacrificial lamb, essentially fulfilling the Passover once and for all, Holy Spirit reveals God's heart and will for man, but not writing it on stones this time, but writing it within your heart and within mine. I'm just going to read Acts 2, 1 to 8. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Holy Spirit came into man, and everyone who would receive him would have this unity between God and man that had never been seen at that level before. Imagine before the Tower of Babel, there had been one language. Now, there's over 7,000 spoken currently. Holy Spirit could have came and healed, just as Jesus said. He could have came and shook the earth. He could have devastated mountains. And instead, he came with language. Language that allowed all the listeners to hear about Jesus in a way that they would understand. And God not only was fulfilling his promise to Jesus to send send the the promise from Jesus to the disciples to send the helper, but he was also fulfilling a much older plan to unite all the different people of the world. Pentecost signals the breaking down of barriers set up since Babel and back to the first relationship of God with man. We see a reversal happening. Unity is finally being restored. And it's not through a human king, prophet, or judge. It is a healing that happens within each human heart anywhere on this planet as the divine God builds intimate relationships with his creation by Holy Spirit. My, may I point out to you as well that this miracle that was given, it was not just for you. It was not an individual gift. In the sense that while everyone did receive it individually, its use was communal in the biggest way. It was a gift that pushes us out of our isolation and out, perhaps, of our comfort zone. It pushed people to be together. And the miracle of language itself is communal. Language finds its value when we're together. It helps unite us. He also does not give the gift just for the inner circle. It didn't just stay up there in the upper room with the disciples. They didn't get this gift and say, oh, let's just hoard it together. Let's just stay here. That gift was for the whole world, that all may hear the true hope in Christ. And sometimes as believers, as we seek God and as we seek his gifts, which is not a bad thing, I think we forget to realize that almost every outflow 
of Holy Spirit, every spiritual gift is not for self, is not just for you. It's for the good of others. They're to heal and move and restore our brothers and our sisters, and even more often, those that are lost and broken. One could argue that isolation from community, from each other, not only hurts you and the rest of the body, which it does, but that the gifts God has given you won't even be able to be used, cannot be used if you're not in some way connected. One commentator brings out another point that while the languages that were being spoken at Pentecost amazed the people, and they did, but the people that were speaking the languages were amazing them. Who are these? Aren't they just Galileans? Ordinary fishermen and tax collectors and just the general guy. And they were amazed. And you know, there's this beautiful story about a monk who was called to preach his first sermon at a monastery. Frightened and intimidated, he opened with the question, how many of you know what I'm about to say? And when no one raised a hand, he, he admitted timidly, well, I don't know either. And dismissed the assembly with the traditional dominant Dominus Vobiscum, the Lord be with you. Of course, his superiors would not let him get off the hook with that kind of behavior. So a week later, he's back up on the platform. And to everyone's surprise, he asks the same question. How many of you know what I'm about to say? And this time, the brothers are determined to teach him a lesson. So everyone raised their hand. And courageously, the young monk smiled and said, Well, since you already know, you don't need to hear the sermon. The Lord be with you. After a severe reprimand, he slowly ascended the stairs of the platform yet a third time. Slowly but deliberately, he astonished the audience with his now traditional question. How many of you know what I'm about to say? To completely unbalance this clever amateur, half of the brothers raised their hand and the other half did not. Well, said the young monk, those of you who know, tell those who don't know. The Lord be with you. And he dismissed the group. You know, we might feel like that monk, that we don't know enough and that we are not mature enough. But we all share what we've been given, what Christ has done with us. We are witnesses, said the Apostle Peter, which is simply people like the disciples who know, telling people who don't know what God has done for us and done in us. And we do not do it alone, as Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the words as we are faithful to take the steps. We have been going through this biblical story of union, separation, and healing of Holy Spirit and that has provided a way for man and God to be united and for man and man to be reunited. And as we read the end of chapter 2 of Acts, it says, and they, were devoted them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe fell upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, to, were together and had all things in common. As they were sell, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
But this unity is growing in our body. And it's not just the Christian community that's suffering from it, but it's our testimony that's going out beyond into our community. We need to reunite. And that means understanding a little bit of the source of our disunity. So I'm going to talk about two different things, starting with polarization. Polarization is the division into two sharply contrasting groups or sets of opinions and beliefs. And you know, people love to pick sides, whether it's a hockey game or a theological idea, and I believe that's part of being human. There's even a biblical basis for sides, good and evil, light and darkness. And we are at times warned about the middle ground in Revelations 3.16. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. We are for him or we are against him. But as we get older, we find that there, there are still issues and sides we must take. But there's this other area that I like to call the gray. There is a complexity to life in each situation that I believe God has left there for his people to work out together in community while maintaining our unity, not alone. And that means conflict, conflict in the best sense of the word. While we must cling to the essentials of our faith in him, there are peripheral topics and issues that are tripping us up. And I like to call those the non-essentials. And as, if I'm honest, as I grow and mature, my essentials are shrinking. Polarization is essentially pushing people into mobilized war camps and our society is in the full grips of this problem. And sadly, the church has not avoided these same traps. And I quote, the culture needs an alternative to itself, not an echo of itself. You know, the internet is playing a major role in polarizing people as its algorithms reinforce whatever direction of thought we choose. Pick a hot topic whether it's climate change or COVID vaccinations or masking or whatever's on your heart right now. Those algorithms feed you a plethora of articles to back up your side. If you tend to pick one side claiming one certain position, you're going to get fed and reinforce that view. You know, the internet does a great job at giving us a massive quantity of information at our, on any given topic. There's probably never been a time in history where so many have access to so much information. And yet what we need to be aware of is what it does not do. It does not screen its information for quality, for truth, and for legitimacy. And if we're not careful, we will quickly develop blinders to the other side of any given topic. And we're losing our ability to discuss our differences, and mere disagreements are fracturing people who need to be united this is happening across our world. When, when COVID began a year ago, in England, there was a conspiracy that 5G towers would spread the virus. Before this could be sorted out, 70 towers were burnt down. And, and 5G engineers that worked on those towers, they had their lives being threatened. This is just one example of the dangers when we when we aren't discovering the truth. And we currently live in an age of opinions that are strongly held but weakly formed. And we're in a world where people are being radicalized for so many different views for very little basis. And this pandemic of polarization is possibly as dangerous or more so than the pandemic that we currently live in. We also know that our culture is a selfish culture. And so we shouldn't be surprised that a selfish culture is a divided culture 
but a divided culture, he needs a united church. And Pastor Paul said it in a sermon a while ago. I like this line. He said, the mind of God is heard through the collective of his people. That means it's not just from what I'm saying. It's not just Pastor Paul when he's speaking or whoever. It's through the collective of his people that we must move forward. In a post-Christendom world that has become a mission field right outside the sanctuary door, Christian community is about gathering and forming a people. And spiritual transformation is about both individual and corporate growth so that they together participate in Christ's mission to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what we're called to. And this is the work that happened at Pentecost and is still present today. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. By all the rules you follow. No. By the perfect theology that you have. No. Your righteousness. Maybe the power and miracles that you perform. No. The purity that you have. No. None of these things. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. For the Christian community, fellowship and unity of purpose are beneficial only when rooted in fellowship with Christ and in the unity of his spirit. The structure of Acts should remind us of this, that the unity of the Christian community derives from and is guided by the gift of the spirit that lies at the heart of its life together. Jesus said Christians should be known for how deeply we love. And yet, for years, studies have shown that in the eyes of many non-Christians, that we're known for how deeply we judge. And this problem is, in many cases, is not that unchurched people do not know any Christians. The problem that is that they do know, and they don't like us for some good reasons. There was a study put out by Barna with the goal to determine whether Christians have actions and attitudes of Jesus as they interact with others or are they more akin to the beliefs and behaviors of Pharisees. You know, the one that added 600 more rules to God's will. And just over half of those self-identified Christians were characterized as having actions and attitudes identified as Pharisaical. Whereas only 14% represented the actions and attitudes that were consistent with those of Jesus. It also said that 62% of, 62% of lapsed Christians, those that have walked away or been disenchanted by Christianity, said the number one quality that they're looking for a person in whom to discuss faith is non-judgment. And only 34% of them said that they knew a Christian that possessed that quality. I'm not calling for unity at the cost of truth, but I believe we can and we must fight for both. In many, the, the study ends by saying many Christians are not concerned with what they call unrighteousness. They're more concerned with what they call unrighteousness than they are with self-righteousness. It's a lot easier to point fingers at how the culture is immoral than it is to confront Christians in their comfortable spiritual patterns. You know, I became a believer at Cape and Ray Bible College in in 2005, and that's a story on its own. But after that, I traveled Europe on a shoestring, going hostel to hostel. And I would always make it a practice when you meet people at hostels, you're always sharing where you've come from and where you're headed. And I always chose to say I came from a Bible college in England. 
And right away, I would see people's eyes glaze over, get angry. They'd almost physically back up. And I knew I was being rejected just by saying that. And yet I pushed through and we hung out. We'd travel through Budapest or Prague or wherever we'd be. And in the evenings, typically, they'd all go to get drunk at the bar. And I'd join them, not to get drunk, but to be with them for a time. And very often I had moments when I'd be sitting there at the table and, and one of the guys would turn to me and say, you know, Adam, when I met you and I heard you were a Christian, I didn't want to hang out with you. And I'd say, well, why not? And he'd say, well, all Christians are just judging me for what I'm doing. And I'd say, well, well, that's, that's not my job. That's God's job. And it opened this dialogue where I could be completely frank with what I believed and what I believed they were doing was wrong and who their ultimate judge was, but that I was there to just love them. And I was there to share. And we, had, we got to talk very frankly. And it's not that I'm perfect at not making judgments. I've had my times and I still do. But what saddened me in that time was that I was the exception to the rule rather than the norm for these guys that were talking with Christians. To push this a little bit farther, this problem of judgment, I want to talk a little bit about sociology. And I'm struck by how much of God's truth is showing up in sociology these days. And I've been listening to a lot of books by Malcolm Gladwell, a uh, uh, Canadian sociologist. In one of his books called Talking to Strangers, he, he does this test, or he talks about this test. A word association test. And I'm going to ask you guys, if you want to, to do it as well. You'll need a piece of paper and a pen, or you can just do it in your mind, or just listen. So what's going to happen, it's a word completion task. And I'm going to give you some letters, and you have to fill in the gaps. For example, the first word, there's going to be 10. I'll say GL, space, space, and you finish that word. The second is space, space, T-E-R. The third, S, space, space, R-E. Then A-T-T, space, space, space. The next, B-O, space, space. Then F-L, space, space, T. Then S-L, space, T. Then C-H-E, space, space. The next, a space, R-A, space. And the final one, space, 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 E-A-T. You can always go back and listen to that again if you didn't catch it. But you know, just as he asks the participants, I'm going to ask you, what do you think your choices of those words that you filled in say about you? I'd love right now to have a dialogue and hear about it, and I won't be able to do that, but you can do that amongst yourselves and your families or wherever you are. But you know, many of these participants, after they completed the word completions, and they were asked that question, said they're just words. They don't have any meaning. They're just things I picked at random. I just went off a theme and kept filling them in. And maybe that's similar to what you're thinking. But when, you, but when he gave these same people other people's test results, other people's 10 words, he would then ask them, what do you think the stranger's words reveal about them? And the participants completely changed their minds. They would say, reading these 10 words of a stranger, this guy sounds really vain because of this, but in the end, he's, he's a pretty nice guy. Or this person looks like he's really looking to get into a relationship, and, but he likes playing board games. 
and just crazy things, or this person's really into numbers. He's a finance guy, but he's also athletic. And no one seems aware that they were trapped in a contradiction. The same people that had said the exercise had no meaning at all on themselves went on to make incredibly detailed judgments on others. Sociologists call this the illusion of asymmetric insight. What that means is that's the conviction that we know others better than they know us, and that we may have insights about them that they may lack, but not vice versa. You know, this leads us to talk when we would do well to listen, to be less patient than we ought to when others express the conviction that they are the ones being misunderstood and judged unfairly. We think we can easily see into the hearts of others based on the flimsiest of clues. And we jump at the chance to judge strangers, I would add brothers and sisters. We would never do that to ourselves, of course, because we're nuanced, complex, and mysterious. But everybody else is easy. People are not easy. I hope that you've seen that. And Christ reminds us that he looks at the inward being and not the outward. You know, this, the world's judgment of the church isn't everything. But let's have them judge us for the right reasons and not the bad. And I've seen lots when we were present here, even on Sundays, people casting judgment on each other for the smallest of things, and I mourned because of it. And so I'm going to go through just some strategies that would help us maybe move forward and move closer together. Maybe that we would spend more time considering evidence of grace in other Christians than you do pondering their sins and weaknesses. It's as if you use a magnifying glass when looking for weaknesses and a telescope when looking for grace. You know, Francis Chan, I was reading a, or listening to a podcast about church unity from Francis, and he, he brought this good idea. You know, if you lived during the time of Mary with Jesus, your Savior, inside her womb, how would you treat her? Now take that to your brother and sister. How do you show honor to those that have Holy Spirit living within them? You know, another way for us to practice comes from a sociologist, Adam Grant, who encourages us to interrogate information instead of just consuming it. We are in a consuming world where we just consume everything, and, and information is no different. And we need to realize that the center of information is often not its source. And I know it's hard, but we need to start working at it a little harder. We need to accept that we will argue and that discussion and argument can be very beneficial. Actually, actually, it's necessary to work in that area of gray. A study looked at parents who argued in front of their kids and stated that it's not how frequently we argue that mattered to the kids' well-being. It is how respectfully they argued. And the kids whose parents clashed constructively feel more emotionally safe in elementary school and show more helpfulness helpfulness and compassion in the years after. We can listen not to respond, but to understand. But that assumes that we're willing to look for the common ground, and many times we're not. From the book 1,000 Gifts by Anne Voskamp, she's talking a lot about gratitude. 
and states that any deep healing community will always be associated with deep gratitude. Look at the end of Acts 2, this amazing community that they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. And I know that we're going through trials, but I think they were too in their time. They probably didn't have a lot. We have a lot as North Americans living in Canada. The amount of blessings that are steeped upon us, it doesn't mean we don't have trials and challenges, but what hearts do we have right now? Are you fostering a heart of gratitude? You know, we can pray and fast together. You guys heard the video stand of of the pastor calling Canada-wide to fast and pray together. It's a way of uniting us. It's 40 days till Canada Day. Pick a day, go online and look on how to do that as a family or do that individually. Sign up for a day. It's not too late even though it starts today. You can pick any time. But that will unite us as we come and fast and pray and seek him. And look at what happened before the Spirit ever came down. Jesus had ascended, and the disciples were still waiting for Holy Spirit. And what were they doing? 114, they were continually united in prayer. They didn't just pray alone in their homes, which is important and good, but they gathered to pray. And praying is hard, and I, for me it's hard. And it takes a lot of work, but it doesn't happen by osmosis. And we need to get together to do it, to encourage one another. And we have prayer groups that meet on Tuesday and Wednesday night. You can see that on our website. And yeah, right now they're on Zoom. And so you might say, well, I'm Zoomed out, Adam, so I'm just going to bow out. And I would challenge that that's not a good excuse. So if you don't want to go on Zoom, find another way. Pray with your own community. Pray with your family or with the small circle that you do interact with. You know, maybe you should find the person that you disagree with the most and start praying for that person. And then the next step would be to start praying with that person and see what happens. I dare you to see what happens, but I bet you great things would. And we need to realize that we can't do any of these things without Holy Spirit. Has it ever occurred to you that over that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? They're, they're one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity or community conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What is this saying? But we must look to him. And unity and community are not our goal, but they are going to be a byproduct and a fruit of us turning our eyes to Jesus and walking in his unifying spirit. You know, I want to see that fist together, that powerful fist to behold, to be that body of Christ. And so I'm going to go into prayer and close now. And maybe some of us are struggling to love one another because we don't even have that love for ourselves. So I'll pray for that too.
Father, we thank you for that momentous time when your spirit fell upon your people and how your spirit is still falling on people, Lord, and regardless of where they are right now, even though I can't see them, you can. And your Holy Spirit is there in that room with them now, Lord, and I ask that you'd pour down upon your people, not for us, Lord, for your glory, Lord, that we would be used in powerful ways by you that we'd be able to put those things aside, Lord, that are just entangling us, that we'd run the race focused, focusing our eyes on you, empowered by Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for your people. Thank you for the hope in you. Thank you you for the empowerment of Holy Spirit. And I'm going to end with a prayer that I received from Pastor Hannah a little while ago. Gracious Emmanuel, send down your spirit of love on all your followers, that we may no longer glory in the little distinctions of any faction or denomination. Instead, may we show we are Christians, standing together under your glorious banner. May we wear your mark of honor on our shoulders or like a crown upon our heads. In that way, may the spirit of hatred, disgrace, and persecution vanish like a noxious musk before the sun. And may it again be said everywhere as it once was. Look how those Christians love each other. Amen. I hope you have a good week.